you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel, book of Daniel chapter 1. If you are not familiar with the Bible or don't have one, there should be one in front of you in the pew. And if you're not, don't know how to navigate your way through it, Daniel chapter 1 is on page 737 of that pew Bible. <clears throat> I would encourage you to have it. We're going to read the entirety of the first chapter in just a moment. But today we begin a 13-week journey through the book of Daniel, Lord willing. The events in Daniel that we'll read about occur while the Jews are in exile in Babylon. And uh, the writing of the book was completed in about 530 B.C. Some argue that it was written about 400 years later, but uh, those arguments are not convincing, and they're based on uh, what I think are problematic presuppositions that we won't go into today, but it was written, uh, there are other times suggested by it. But the book can basically be divided a couple of different ways. The first way is into two halves, all right? So in the first six chapters, you have narrative, you have stories, you have stories that fill children's Sunday school classes, Stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den. But once you get to chapter 7, things change significantly and the whole type of literature changes. We're now into apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature gives uh, visions of the future and the unfolding of world history using symbols. So kind of like what you see as you read through the book of Revelation in the New Testament. So that's one way to divide the book. Another way to divide the book is not into two halves, but into two languages. There are two different languages used. The first, so one is Hebrew, which is used from the beginning of the book through chapter 2 and the first part of verse 4. And then Hebrew picks back up in chapters 8 to 12. And in between those two is Aramaic. All right, but through, so you can divide this thing a couple of ways, but through the whole of the book, there is this unified message. That all of these events and all of these visions are given to us by God. They are meant to fuel in us both faith and hope in dark days. And so that's what we're going to be looking for as we move through this book. So let's begin. Uh, I will read uh, Daniel chapter 1, I'll read all, all of it, and then we'll pray. This is what the Spirit says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. 
They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them... None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would strengthen us with it, that by your spirit you would open our minds and our ears and our hearts so that we would hear and receive and believe and live according to the truth of your word. You have the words of life. Where else would we go? Speak, O Lord. For we, your servants, are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Where is God in all this? That's a question we often ask when we look at the unfolding events in our world. It's also a question that we ask when tragic and painful events unfold in our lives and in our families because our days can be so dark, so hard, we can wonder, has God forgotten me? Will His purposes win out? Where is God in all this? 
But you know, we're not actually the first people to ask those kinds of questions. Those questions were asked in the Bible in different ways. In Judges chapter 6, Gideon asks the angel who visits him, If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all His wonderful deeds? Where is God in all this? David prays in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Where is God in all this? Asaph prays in Psalm 74, verse 10, How long, O Lord, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Where is God in all this? And that last one, wondering where God is when God's enemies prosper, might have rolled through the minds of Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah and the other exiles after they're ripped from their homes and carted off to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar's army. You see, over a thousand years earlier, God had made promises to Abraham. Promises of a great nation and a land to bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. And now this great nation is disintegrating. And they're expelled from the land. And those who curse them seem to be blessed. They're winning. You see, they were in Jerusalem, their home with their families. And when Josiah had been king, he led reforms. The temple was repaired and idolatry was purged and God's word was being taught again and the Passover celebrated again. Those were good days God's work and God's plan and God's blessing and God keeping His promises was very clear to them, to to Israel in those days. But things went downhill very quickly as they had been downhill already. And now, these young men wake up every morning in Babylon, exiles, aliens, strangers, in a place firmly opposed to their faith and to their way of life. Where is God in all this? And Daniel chapter 1 helps us to answer that question. Because as I see it, the point here is that God's faithfulness endures even while wickedness prospers. God's faithfulness endures even while wickedness prospers. It looks like evil is winning. In the old westerns, the guys with the black hats are taking over everything. What's happening here? And Daniel comes along and he taps us on the shoulder. And he reminds us that there's more going on here than meets the eye. There's more going on here than the evil. There's more going on than what you can see. There's more to the story because God's faithfulness endures even while wickedness prospers. 
So what I want us to see as we move through this is God's faithfulness over and over again. First, that God faithfully keeps His promises from the past. God faithfully keeps His promise from the past. The the book opens with this historical marker and then a theological interpretation. Let's just look at verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels of the treasure in the treasury of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar, just to let you know where we're at, Nebuchadnezzar has just defeated uh, Egypt in the Battle of Carchemish, which is a very famous battle in 605 B.C., and on the way back, because Jehoiakim was basically the puppet king of Egypt, he hits, he hits Jerusalem on the way back and, and robs the temple and, and takes its vessels and he takes people, he takes a whole group of people, including Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he takes these vessels from the temple and he takes them back to Babylon and he puts them in the temple of his God. But it's quite likely the the, the Babylonian god Marduk. But he doesn't do it because there's extra storage space in the temple of his God. You see, in the ancient Near East, when you go to war, you invoke your gods to go with you. And when, if you lose, that means the other person's God was more powerful than your God. And if you win, it means your gods are more powerful than theirs. So as they're traipsing back from Jerusalem and they've robbed the temple, they've besieged, they've won, what they do is they take these vessels to put them in the temple of their God as a kind of trophy of the win. So if you could imagine, once that happens, little little boys delivering the Babylonian Gazette the next day, the headline reads, Marduk marches on as Israel's God is humiliated. Now this would be the first of actually three waves of exiles and eventually things will go from bad to worse. Second Chronicles 36 tells us, And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. This is a Pearl Harbor type moment. This is a September 11th type moment. This is a huge milestone in the history of Israel. But unlike those milestones, there was no fighting back and winning here. There was only exile. They were taken away. It is a low point in Israelite history, and it's reflected in something like Psalm 137, which is painful to read. But it begins, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And then they asked the question, How shall we sing the Lord's song? in a foreign land. Because right after that, in the psalm, there's this image of, the, of, of their captors saying, come on, sing us something. Sing us one of those praise songs that tells us how powerful your God is. Do that for us. How can we do it? How can we sing? You ever been there? Or you've wondered how you can sing? 
That's where they're at. And yet in all of this, God is not absent. His work hasn't been put on pause. Yes, His work isn't what you might expect, but He is working. And you see it in these four little words at the beginning of verse 2. And the Lord gave. You see, it's not so much that Nebuchadnezzar took, though he did. But behind the hand that took is the hand that gave. The hand that holds all of human history securely. Friends, you need to remember that. You need to remember, no matter what headline you read, no matter what news channel you watch, no matter what event happens to unfold, it may seem quite out of your control and quite out of our control, but it is never for a solitary millisecond out of God's control. He holds all of human history in His hand. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from his hand, then surely world-shaking events cannot occur apart from his hand. That in itself isn't good news until you remember that God is good and God is trustworthy and God is going somewhere with all of this. And it may feel like you're in the, you know, you're in the third movement of a sonata where everything is minor and bah, 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 right? But you know at the end it's going to kick back up and the happy theme's going to come again. God's hand is firmly composing. It has composed history and the music is playing and will play until he says it's over. And it will finish precisely as he says and it will finish in beauty and it will finish in glory but right now it's really dark which is why we have to remember that the Lord gave and giving up his people into exile uh, uh, God, is, God is actually being faithful to promises He's made. In places like Leviticus 26, He had made promises to Israel to bless them if they were faithful and obeyed and promises to punish if they were unfaithful and disobeyed. So we read in Leviticus 26, 33, I will scatter you among the nations. I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. And these kinds of punishments are repeated in Deuteronomy 28. And then later on, Hezekiah of all things seeks to make an alliance with Babylon, the bad guys. And he shows them, look at all this treasure I have. This could be yours if we work together. I'll share. And God says to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah, some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So when we come to read Daniel 1, what we find in these first two verses is that God is doing exactly what He said He would do. He's not absent. 
He's very, very present. And the Lord gave. If you just let your mind go forward in the Bible, say to Romans chapter 1, three times it says, and God gave them up, and God gave them up, and God gave them up. It is getting darker and darker as Romans 1 goes along, and yet God is not absent. God is at work. We only tend to think of God being at work when everything is happy, happy, laugh, right? But God does not cease to work. He will not cease to work. Because from all things, from, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, even things that don't look that way. The world is getting worse in Daniel chapter 1. Evil has the upper hand, but God hasn't lost control. I wonder how dark your world is right now. I wonder if you're having trouble seeing the Lord at work. Well, you're in a large company if you're there. Because this trail of exiles marching from Jerusalem to Babylon probably struggled to see God at work. So Daniel writes it down. The Holy Spirit has Daniel write it down. The Lord's not absent. The Lord gave. Secondly, we see that God faithfully helps his people in the present. This is when we come to meet, we, now we come to meet Daniel and his friends, beginning in verse 3. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. He assigns them a portion of his food and the wine that he drinks. He wants them educated for three years uh, so they'll stand before him, which means to, to serve in his court. Verse 6, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So Nebuchadnezzar's plan is not a short-term strategy. He doesn't want to just, you know, decimate all the people, just get rid of all the people. What he wants actually is to remake the people into the image of Babylonian. That's what he's hoping to do. So what they do is they start with the best and the brightest. They start with those who serve the king. They start with ones who lead. They start with ones who have potential. They go, to, they go take, oh, you're in the National Honor Society. Why don't you come with us? Oh, you're the star quarterback. Why don't you come with us? Oh, you're the editor of your local paper. Why don't you come with us? And they take them. And here's the plan. We're going to re-educate them. We're going to indoctrinate them. We're going to teach them Babylonian language and Babylonian literature. Because after all, culture is built on shared language and shared ideals, ideals that are often related and communicated in literature. Teach them Babylonian philosophy. 
Teach them Babylonian cultic practices. Capture their minds and their hearts so that they'll buy in to the Babylonian dream. Give them new names. Take away the names that remind them of home and of their families and of their God. Give them new names that will fit here in a new life in Babylon. Make them forget they're in exile. Make them think this is the new normal. This is now home. Make them forget Israel as much as possible. Give them some of the king's food and the king's wine. Not just food and wine, not just because it's meat. Give them the king's food, the best cuts. Give them the filet. Give them the king's wine. Wine them and dine them and woo them. So they think, well, we're not home anymore, but this isn't bad. Make them start to think it, we might be better off here in Babylon. Look at all the things that we have here. And once you've got them there, you've got them. Then they're really useful to Nebuchadnezzar. Friends, this is the plan of the world to conform its citizens to its way of thinking, to its philosophies, to its language and literature. It's why Paul insists to the Romans, do not be conformed to this world. Now, certainly, this happens through formal education. Education isn't amoral. Education comes with worldviews, no matter what adjective comes prior to the world education, whether it is public education, private education, Christian education, homeschool, home education. And whatever path parents choose for their children and whatever path of higher education may be chosen, the world system simply wants to come in. It wants to be like water that will find any crack that will come in and get in. And in many, many cases, it has. It has to the degree that it just feels like the air that you're breathing. Like how would we survive we didn't have that, if we didn't think that way. But many of you are thinking, well, my formal education ended a long time ago. And some of you add a couple more longs after long. It ended a long, long, long time ago. Well, friends, education doesn't stop once you move the tassel from one side to the next. The baton is passed to governing authorities, to movie makers, to advertising executives, to media outlets, all who want to educate, teaching the language and the literature of the world to capture our minds, to capture our hearts, to try and encourage us to forget our God, and to think, we've got it pretty good in this world. 
And friends, the messages of our Babylon, they, they may come at us from the left. And they may come at us from the right. But we must be resolved, as Daniel was, to heed only the message from above. You see, at some point, whether it was while they were walking to Babylon or maybe when this whole education plan was laid out, Daniel resolves not to be defiled. Look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Why the food and the wine? Let me just tell you, people answer that question all kinds of ways, all right? But every single answer I read came with a, yeah, but afterwards. <laughs> so the text doesn't tell us, does it? I mean, did you see a reason? All we know is that Daniel refuses, resolves that he will not be defiled. There is something defiling in taking the food of the king, in taking the wine of the king. Personally, I think it's the of the king part there. But it's interesting what happens here. The same Hebrew verb is used three times, twice in verse 7 and once in verse 8 to show us this resolve. So more literally, I'll just help you see it. Look at verse 7. The chief of the eunuchs set them names. Daniel he set as Belteshazzar. And then verse 8 begins. But Daniel set that he would not defile himself. His name is set, but his path will not be set by the chief of the eunuchs or by Nebuchadnezzar or by any Babylonian. Daniel is set to remain faithful. He is set to remain pure. There are things that he will endure, that he will tolerate, that he will learn, that he will understand, but he will not be wooed. To coin a word, he will not be Babylonianized while he is there. And God helps him. Look at verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. This was asked after Daniel went to him. Look at the end of verse 8. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Isn't that interesting? Daniel doesn't make a stink. He doesn't start a picket line. He doesn't write an angry blog. He doesn't go get harsh with him. He doesn't post nasty things about Nebuchadnezzar on his Facebook page. He actually works within the system where he lives with humility, trusting the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson writes, we do not need to be graceless or obnoxious to be faithful to God. I wonder how many people today actually understand that. That our faithfulness isn't simply seen in that we stand for our faith, but also in how we stand for our faith. And he is set to defile himself, but he will also honor God as he does it. So he makes this request. Look at verse 10. He goes to the... So so the chief of the eunuchs replies to him. This is great. The chief of the eunuch replies, uh, I fear my lord the king 
who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Now, uh, I, I, I imaginatively think he says, you would endanger my head. But then he seems to look the other way when the steward he sent along gets the, basically the same request. Can we just do a test here? Can, let's just run a test. And the chief of the eunuchs is like, you can put his head at danger, just not mine. All right, he's not concerned about the diet. This is not to say if you're faithful to God and you're resolved to live for God, you only need to eat vegetables and drink water. That's not what this is saying. All right, eat bacon at lunch. So that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that he is resolved not to take food from the king, not to take wine from the king, not to be on the king's dime, not to be in the king's good graces in that way, not to have everything he has supplied from him. It is his way of just saying, they may come this far, but they will not have me. And so he says... Verse 12, test your servants for ten days, all four of them. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the ewes who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. And they pass the test. They look stronger. They look healthier. Daniel's resolve not to defile himself but to honor God won't have repercussions. For now, others are coming later. But notice what happens. Look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And God Gave The same God that had given Israel into the hands of Babylon is not done working. He is now going to help His people right now, right where they are in Babylon. And God helps them through this three-year education plan. And here's the result, 18 to 20. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. It's quite a turn of events, isn't it? These young men have studied, they've worked hard, but the, but the Lord has helped them. And, and through it all, they've resolved, we will not bow to Babylonian ideals. We will not be defiled. And God helps them. He helps them understand. He helps them learn. He helps them with the literature. And God gives them favor. Just think about this. The Babylonian government who wants to erase God from the exile's memories... Okay, that's what the Babylonian government wants to do, erase God from them. Now looks at these four who refuse to forget God, and he treasures them. Isn't that just wonderful? There's just this glorious piece of irony right here. 
They want to erase God, but without knowing it, they know they can't adequately function without Him. They don't even know it. It's so great. God faithfully helps His people in the present, and Daniel knows that. He's experienced it. Daniel knows what Isaiah says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So that in the days of exile, Daniel doesn't fear. He's not dismayed. He trusts in the Lord because the Lord is with him, strengthening him, helping him, upholding him. And friend, in your dark days, in the dark days of our world, we can trust the Lord who will be with us and who will strengthen us and who will uphold us in the same way. And God gave. Aren't those wonderful words? The last thing to notice is that God will faithfully keep His promise for the future. Look at verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now that's a real head-scratcher. What is going on? Because sitting here, you may know who Cyrus is because you've studied other parts of the Bible, but at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1, if you're not there, you don't know who is, who is Cyrus. We know Nebuchadnezzar, we have Ashpenaz, we have the steward of the chief eunuch. What what? Are, who is Cyrus? What are, what are we doing here? However, know this. Verse 21 takes us into the future. Several decades after Daniel and his friends are taken into exile. When Babylon falls to Persia, and Persia is led by, any guesses? Cyrus. You see, there's something, to, there's something that we need to know here. Because even though there's this huge jump, we're going to go right back to where we were. But at the end of Daniel 1, we get this little peek into the future, just a little pullback of the curtain. Something to note, you see, because Nebuchadnezzar is going to lie down in his grave. And so is his son and his grandson, and his great-grandson, and his great-great-grandson, and his great-great-great-grandson. And with all of those kings in the grave, Daniel will still be standing. You see, the kingdoms of this world will come and go. But the kingdom of God is going nowhere. It is, as Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, Daniel's presence in verse 21 is a reminder, a reminder of God's faithfulness. God hasn't forgotten His people. He'll keep His promises, including the promise to return, because the Bible teaches us that Cyrus is the human instrument that will send them back. 
So as the Jews gather in their synagogues and Daniel is opened up and Daniel chapter 1 is read and they hear and the Lord gave and God gave and God gave and Daniel was there until Cyrus. They can now look back as we all can when we look in the rearview mirror, right? We can look back with different eyes than we looked at in the moment. Providence is best read backwards. None of us is going to get to the end and say, well, Lord, you really could have done it better than that. None of us. And if we dare to do it, we may not be there to say it. Where was God in all of that? He was right there. He was the never-failing ruler of their hearts, the everlasting lover of their souls. On the mountain high, or in the valley low, or by the waters of Babylon, the king of love their shepherd is. Who would have thought an 80-something-year-old Jew living a faithful life in exile under wicked foreign governments would be a reminder of God's faithfulness. How much more unlikely then that a 33-year-old Jew who lives a perfect life before God the Father suffers under a wicked and foreign government is mocked and tortured and beaten and exiled from Jerusalem to a hill outside and there he is crucified and he's our reminder of God's faithfulness. You see, Jesus is the greater Daniel, crucified and risen and standing even now as kingdoms rise and fall, standing as a reminder of God's faithfulness. In Him, God keeps His promise of forgiveness for our sin for all who turn to Him in faith. And God keeps His promise each day to His people to be with us in the person of His Holy Spirit, to strengthen us, to help us as we live as exiles, as aliens, as strangers in a world diametrically opposed to our faith and to the way of life God has given us. And friends, God will keep His promise for the future. Not simply of a land, but of a new earth where wickedness will not prosper because wickedness will be no more. The kingdoms of men will continue to rise and fall until that day when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And until that day, we live each day now clinging to the truth that God's faithfulness endures even when wickedness prospers. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh God, how thankful we are that you are faithful. How thankful we are that your purposes are not thwarted by us, 
by our sin, by the rulers of this world, by governing authorities, by media outlets, by movie makers. They are not thwarted by any force that would seek to rail and scream against you. You will not be thwarted in carrying out your promises. You will not fail to be faithful. You are everlasting and never failing. Thank you for these words. Thank you that you give. That your hand is firmly on the steering wheel of human history and on every detail of our lives. Help us to be like Daniel and to be like Job who said that you give and you take away and your name is still blessed. Lord, we do pray that you will help us in the present. We pray that you will help us to set ourselves, not to be re-educated or indoctrinated with the philosophies of the world, its language, its literature, but rather that we will be resolved to honor you. And we pray that you will set our hearts on the hope of the future, that because Jesus Christ is risen and ascended at your right hand and will return, we can live with hope and faith in dark days. May it be so for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.